So guys, remember how we did that cool teaching roundtable on the podcast last spring where we talked about decolonizing teaching and anthropology and stuff? Um, when I think of decolonizing, at least in the context of academia, I think it's about trying to make sure we're drawing attention to and problematizing all the assumptions about power, who has it, how it circulates, um, even assumptions about what counts as scholarship and knowledge. Like all the things we take for granted should all, in a way, be scare quoted. That was John L. Jackson Jr. at the University of Pennsylvania. And by decolonizing, our guests meant thinking about how to disrupt traditional power dynamics in the classroom. So through sort of modes of teaching, but they also meant the substance of teaching, that is teaching with the perspectives of people who've been historically marginalized. And so, you know, that conversation got me thinking about a book that I came across a couple of years ago by a 19th century Haitian anthropologist named Antenor Fromin. Can you say that again? Antenor Fromin. Or Antonor Furman, if you want to make it sound good. <laughs> no. Um, it's a book called The Equality of the Human Races. Wait, the, the Equality of the Human Races? Yeah. That that actually sounds like the, the 1850s blockbuster, The Inequality of the Human Races by Arthur de Gobineau. Yeah. I think we talked about Gobineau a little bit in our first installment in that miniseries we did on race and intelligence. Yeah. Yes, and that's no coincidence. The book is... It's not exactly a response to de Gobineau's work. It's it's actually really a response to the work of a whole bunch of other people. But Fermin did borrow the title from de Gobineau because all the people he was really arguing against were still alive. And this sounds like something Eric would say is complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. It is. It is. So what I'm saying is, let's do an episode on it. Okay. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of Race. So, Antonio Fromin, he wrote The Equality of the Human Races. This book has gotten some popularity in recent years, even though it was published in 1885. I really hadn't heard about it before you started talking about it over the last couple of years. And you know, even in my going back and looking at contemporaneous scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois, he doesn't make any reference to it, even though he was writing about these issues of race and science late in the 19th and early 20th century after this was published. I find that kind of mysterious, right? I mean, you'd think that an anthropologist who was arguing for racial equality, well, they would have made it onto somebody's radar screen right at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, and Haiti's been in the news a lot recently for some pretty bad things. This is relevant in other ways too, right? The presidential assassination, then the massive earthquake, and the tropical storm that just hit. So let's talk about not just what Fermat said in his book, but why it didn't become a major text for early 20th century anthropologists. And, and maybe you can also tell us why we've heard about this book in the 21st century when it seems like other major scholars like Du Bois did not mention it in the 20th yeah. century. Well, I can answer that last part fairly quickly. So the story is American anthropologist Carolyn Fleur-Lobin, who was teaching in the U.S. at the time, uh, she found out about Fermat when a Haitian international student took her course on race and anthropology and brought him up in the 1990s. She'd never heard of him before either, and so she collaborated with a Haitian literature professor, Asseline Charles, to translate the equality of the human races into English. 
Oh, wait. So you're saying that it hadn't even been translated for over a century. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Amazingly. Yes. So it was only published for the first time in the U.S. in the year 2000. Okay. Okay. So why is it that we want to bring up a book written over a century ago that wasn't translated into English and was largely unknown for most of that time? That's what an anthropologist would say. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, when I first read it, it really, this book really struck me. And it struck me in part because of the fact that I was thinking about looking outside of the typical sort of white male European canon of the history of race science. And also because it so closely addresses all of these big historical race ideas that we teach and talk about on this podcast. And I just, I felt like it really deserved its own treatment. So the time is ripe to do an episode that will hopefully help folks become more aware of this thinker who's really pretty incredible and has been marginalized for way too long. This sounds good, but I want to do that historian's thing. Before we get to the book, can you tell us about the author? Sure. Yeah. So his full name was Joseph Auguste Antenor Fermat, better known just as Antenor Fermat. He was born in 1850 in Cap Haitien, which is in the northernmost coast of Haiti. It's the former capital of the French colony. So it's a very cosmopolitan place. He was born to a working class family and was very, very bright. He studied accounting and law. He became a lawyer. He taught Greek and Latin on the side starting at age 17. So he was really precocious. He also began to get into politics fairly young. He published this liberal party pamphlet that eventually became a very important political newspaper in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he helped lead a militia defending his town against a bunch of rebels, he got even more into politics and <laughs> then made an unsuccessful bid for the Haitian parliament in 1879. Huh. The newly elected president around that time was Solomon, and Fermat refused to take up a ministerial position under him. He disagreed with him, and he was basically exiled from Haiti and ended up in Paris in the early 1880s. He served there as a diplomat, and that's where he met Louis-Joseph Janvier and Jean-Baptiste Dehoux, who were two other Haitian intellectuals. They were both there in Paris studying medicine. So Fermat was then eventually elected to the Société d'Anthropologie de Paris, or the Anthropological Society of Paris. He was sponsored in part by Janvier and Dehoux, and he was elected in 1884. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. What? Why? Why? So I think it's worth noting that Fermat is a black Haitian joining the anthropology society that was set up by Paul Broca in 1859. And Broca sets this up as a breakaway society from the the biological society of Paris, in part because he wanted to emphasize the unbridgeable differences between human races and the superiority of Europeans. And that was part of a trend that was going on at that time. There were the same kinds of groups of people getting together in Britain and France and the U.S. and other places. People like Broca, who, by the way, was best known for discovering what's called today Broca's area, a part of the brain that plays a role in speech production. These people were setting up anthropology societies to study the physical features of humans and promote polygenism against the already existing ethnographic societies who studied linguistics and religion and culture. And they were usually monogenous, believing in a single origin for all humans. So in 1884, when Fermat joins the society, he's basically walking into the monogenism, polygenism debate that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and maybe even the origins of the separation between biological and cultural anthropology. 
yeah, I mean, I'm totally surprised that Fermat would even want to be in that society. <laughs> I'm at least as surprised that they would even let him in. Yeah, okay, true. And we should talk more about that, which we will. But first, how did Broca, <laughs> the guy who founded the Anthropological Society, get from brain anatomist to polygenist and like racist anthropologist? I don't know that history at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a pretty interesting story, given Broca's interest in anatomy. He was first part of that biological society in the mid-19th century. And in that society, there were debates going on about how a species might be defined. Not coincidentally, Darwin is working on the same question in Britain. But Broca presented a creature to that biological society called a leopard, which is a cross between a rabbit and a hare. And it was fertile. Now, the reason why that matters is because he argued that the species definition was predicated on an inability to produce fertile offspring and that that definition was wrong. And he also argued at the time that the leopard was evidence supporting polygenism, that separateness of human races into distinct species. Because if a hare and a rabbit could produce fertile offspring but be different species, then he thought that's exactly what was happening with interracial offspring of ostensibly different human species, according to him. So usually that argument about infertility is how you say that things are different species. So here's Broca saying, yeah, well, but we have things that we know for sure are different species and they are able to have fertile offspring. So just that all by itself doesn't mean that different human races aren't different species. Species. Yes. Okay. And I bet the Société de Biologie, the Biological Society, just ate that up. They didn't. (laughs) They didn't like it at all, right? Because so we're in the mid-19th century, and that notion of the fixity of species or the fixity of type had already been under attack in France for like a whole century since Buffon used to argue with Linnaeus, which we've talked about in this podcast. Yeah. I mean, that's long, long, even before Darwin writes about the non-fixity of species explicitly in Origin of Species in 1859. So Broca's Anthropological Society had the explicit purpose of debating that fixity of type, but with humans. And here's the weird thing. Jean-Louis Armand de Quatrefage, who was one of Darwin's chief correspondents, and a major proponent of monogenism in France, actually joined Broca's Anthropological Society shortly after its founding. So in that society, in that Anthropological Society, you have that debate between monogenism and polygenism going on right there in the middle of the 19th century. And and we need to remember, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, the French had been really central to early race science with scholars that we've talked about like Bernier and others like Cuvier, who we haven't mentioned in this podcast before, but who is known as the founding father of paleontology, and Buffon, and then, of course, Broca himself. So everyone was looking at what happened in Paris for information about this race debate. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, a lot of pressure on the society, maybe, and consequently, a lot of pressure on Fermat as well. Yeah, totally. and, and, and to make matters even worse for Fermat, Broca's star student, Paul Topinard, you'll remember him because we talked about him in our episode on Thugheads, our very yeah. famous episode on Thugheads. Thugheads. <laughs> yes. Topinard took over as secretary general when Broca died, and he wielded a lot of influence in the society. 
the same year that Fermat's book came out in 1885, Topin published a book called Elements of General Anthropology, though it's often just translated into English as the one word title, Anthropology. Yeah, and given what that Topinard's anthropology says, I really can't imagine that Fermat felt very comfortable in those meetings. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I'm, you're going to make me give bad quotes again. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so unsurprisingly for a book written in 1885, maybe, Topinard's textbook has all through it this background superiority of whites and inferiority of blacks. There's a ton about skull measurements, of course, let me just read one quote. So, quote, the Negro, in other words, has Keteris paribus, the cerebral cranium less developed than the white, end mm. quote. And he even retains that fear of race mixing that we've seen over and over again in the 19th century. He used pejorative terms like mongrel. And that was late. Uh, at that point, in, by the 1880s, other scholars had stopped using the word mongrel in scholarly work. Yeah, even though people like to think that somehow after legalized slavery was done away with across the globe and Darwin's ideas about evolution were beginning to gain prominence in biology, that racism somehow magically left science. Right. <laughs> in most ways, though, pretty much all the social and biological sciences were still governed by racist ideas, as we'll discuss in our soon-to-be-recorded 3,000-part series on the 19th century. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, we do yeah. need to get to that. So Fermat and his colleagues, Janvier and Dehoux, they find themselves part of this society where they are sitting through hours of discussion about the ostensible inferiority of their race. I can't I, imagine. I mean, Fermat <laughs> yeah. only took the floor twice during his many year membership, but both times were actually well after the publication of the book we're going to talk about today. And both times he was basically rebuffed and said like, how can you be so smart? Are you like an exceptional specimen of your race? Do you yes. have white people in your ancestry who can who can account for your intelligence? Just stuff like that. Right. So, Joe, do you know anything about how in the world Fermat and the other Haitians with him could just tolerate the disdain to which I'm sure they were subject in meeting after meeting after meeting? Well, actually, Fermat writes about that in his opening to the book, The 1885 Equality of the Human Races. He, he might have been enraged inside, but he says he didn't feel able to object for fear of being either just discredited or straight up kicked out of the society. Yeah. That, that to me seems like exactly the rational response. Right. And, and I mean, in some, in many senses, actually, it served as the motivation for him writing the book. In the front matter, he states specifically that he wrote it as a rebuttal to the racial science to which he was exposed in the Societe. So in some senses, this book is his answer. Huh. Um, and he published it just a year after he was elected to the group. So he kind of furiously wrote yeah. it in this one year period huh. from when he started being exposed to these ideas to when he actually published it. And it's a really big book. So that's a pretty amazing feat. Yeah. And so even though it has this title that references the long dead Count de Gobineau, uh, his book is really a direct response to the most respected French scientists at the time, like Broca, Topinard, and other French anthropologists who were part of the group. So Joe, you're doing so well with this heavy lifting. Can you tell us how he goes about this process of discrediting these big, big names in French science? Yeah. I mean, Actually, the way he approaches it is, is really close to how I've seen you teach about it, Jim. Great um, minds. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to attack famous scientists, you have to use other even more famous scientists. Mm -hmm. So Fermat adopts positivism following the French statistician and philosopher Auguste Comte, by which Fermat means that he dispassionately reviews the evidence on various sides of the race debate and makes a judgment based on what that evidence shows. So I'm sure that dispassionate thing is exactly what Topenhardt and basically every other anthropologist <laughs> also said that they were doing. All you scientists constantly claiming objectivity. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And he does, you know, Fermat starts off the book, like many of these big sort of survey of a huge topic books that were published around this time. He starts out with this big examination of the approaches that polygenists have taken so far, like across time and space to try to oh. figure out what races are and how many of them there should be. And that analysis ends up occupying most of his chapters two and five, and to some extent, the seventh chapter of the book as well. That's interesting because it sounds a little bit like what Darwin would do in his Descent of yeah. Man, written right around the same time. Yeah, it is similar. Jim pointed out this section to me where Darwin does it, and I looked at them both, and they're they're quite similar. You know, like Darwin, Fermat draws out all these contradictions between the polygenists, not just on how many races they think there are, but even like on the criteria they're using to define races. So he goes through this litany of heavy hitters we've talked about before, Linnaeus, Morton, Blumenbach. And then he takes on a whole bunch of the French figures who would have been important to other anthropologists in Paris, some of whom we've mentioned on the podcast and some of whom we haven't. People like Domalius Dialoy, Louis Figuier, Cuvier, de Quatrefage, who we've mentioned already, Forin, Hollard, Lacépide, Villeray, and Saint-Vincent. That's a much bigger list than Darwin would try to tackle. <laughs> Right. So he really tackles a lot, just like right up front. And he shows very quickly that these well-respected guys are just all over the map in terms of their methods and the outcomes of their attempts at classification of races. Um, he even condemns these as, here's, here's a great quote from him, fanciful and arbitrary designations that say nothing about the natural particularities of the races. He's, he's right there, of course. Uh even when these other workers go multifactorial in trying to pull out variables to uh, classify, their racial categories don't work, let alone when they're looking at only one factor like cranial capacity or skin color or mm -hmm. nasal index like Topinard created for the Indian case that we talked about. Huh. Yeah. yeah, and this is where Fermat attacks Broca directly. He's talking about the use of shot or seeds to fill up skulls. Morton's infamous method in his Crania Americana, like we talked about last year mm -hmm. in an episode. Yes, which was also used by Broca in France. So Fermat presents the data for Morton, then he presents Broca's data, and he shows how even their own data don't support their conclusions of racial hierarchy. He argues instead the fact that Morton and Broca said their data did support this reveals what these supposedly objective scientists were really after. In Broca's case, he already regarded Black people as inferior before doing any of the measurements. And uh, in Morton's case, well, here's another quote. Eric? Okay, magic quote reading. <laughs> this is the symbol for quote reading. <laughs> Okay, quote, as for the chart based on the averages calculated by Morton, we know what to think of it. The mindset with which American scientists, except for some rare individuals, approach anthropology makes all their statements suspect. For them, anthropology is only a means to justify slavery. Oh, nice sick burn and very <laughs> accurate. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this guy is... He's taking on some seriously famous scientists here. This would Absolutely. be like, 
you know, some upstart physicist from the back of beyond raking Stephen Hawking or Neil deGrasse Tyson across the coals for being more motivated by their prejudices than by their science. So this is really ballsy. Um, and, you know, in the rest of the book, he basically systematically goes through all the physical evidence in favor of racial distinctions and like he's been doing so far shows why they're in some cases just totally fictitious, like uh, the so-called blinking membrane of the eye, for example. Oh, wait, that, that was that. That was that old belief that because they were closer to non-human animals, people of African descent had like an extra eye membrane. Is that right? More anatomical apocrypha. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's just completely made up, right? Huh. But eminent anatomist Broca over here, he had repeated this myth. And other French anthropologists had repeated perhaps even the worst myth of all, which was this idea that Black people were supposedly insensitive or less sensitive to pain. Yeah. Uh... And that's the one that's still repeated in medical schools, even to this day. Yeah. So Fermat is pointing out in 1885, really early, that this question around pain tolerance between the races has never been measured, except with white people observing slave whippings. Double. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I really hadn't considered that one of the origins of the black bodies don't feel pain the same way myth would be based on whipping of slaves, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. Perman's takedown of this is really wonderful. He says whipping showed, quote, a manifestation of courage on the part of individuals who would proudly and stoically suffer in silence rather than pass for a coward. Huh. And for that reason, these observations couldn't be a testimony to the lack of pain or lack of sensitivity to pain among Black people, but instead to the excess of mental fortitude of black uh, people, right. even, you know, as he describes it, potentially superior to the mental fortitude of the white people who are wielding the whips. Uh, so it's a really beautiful reversal of, of this argument. And, you know, yeah. there goes yet another silly piece of evidence for polygenism out the window. Yeah. He also points out that there's no evidence that mixed race unions produce children who are any less capable or fertile than their parents. That's no. another one of the old scientific racist cliches. Yeah. And, and if all that knocking down of bad assumptions wasn't enough, Fermat actually goes ahead to tell the story of how Broca's Société d'Anthropologie came into being. And he particularly calls Broca to the mat for his failure to account for climatological influences on skin color and hair form. Something that we talked about just in our last episode when That's we true. discussed skin color. Yeah. So it's clear that Fermat argued hard trying to dismantle the mythological and the pseudoscientific bases of racism from the mid to the late 19th century. So it's really too bad that his equality of the human races was literally a case of a tree falling in the forest with no yeah. one there to hear. Right. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, think about it. I mean, his book would have been a really nice stepping stone for Franz Boas and W.E.B. Du Bois to build on when they successfully began to untangle race and culture just a few years after he published this thing. It's true. Yeah. Huh. And, you know, from all evidence in the historical record, the book was basically ignored. Its publication was announced, as was the custom in the society, and Fermin presented them a signed copy. But based on the publications of the proceedings of the society, it doesn't appear that anyone paid any attention. Like, it was never mentioned again. That's it was also, of course, as we said already, never translated into English or German. So it was pretty much ignored by Anglophone scholars in Western Europe and the U.S. And though Fermin was an internationally known figure by the time of his death, which happened in 1911, 
His obituary in the New York Times described him as a learned man, but didn't even mention the book either. Um, So it stayed pretty much unknown outside Haiti until Fleur Lobin and Asseline Charles translated it and published it in 2000. 2000, So maybe we can pivot to talking about why it gets sort of ignored or forgotten. Hmm. And I want to add another layer of complexity to this. It's even more surprising to me, given that Vermont actually has a relationship with Frederick Douglass, who hopefully listeners will be familiar with. I mean, he's basically Frederick Douglass is a household name. Even Trump knew about him. Right. Right. Although he thought he was still alive. He thought he was alive and doing very good work these days. That's right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think in order to understand why Fermin's book never made it onto the shelves of people like Franz Boas or W.E.B. Du Bois, we have to talk about the history of Haiti at the turn of the 20th century and what was history. Hold my beer. (laughs) <laughs> okay you're gonna you're gonna have to help me pick this apart eric okay, so, history yay <laughs> i know right you're ready for it so so for my return from paris to haiti in the late 1880s and haitians really read his book huh. it made a huge impact there it launched him into a high-powered political career that really defined the rest of his life yeah that's that's like what happened to me after all of my wonderful academic publications <laughs> i'm sure it's what? it's just waiting for eric too <laughs> I mean, I guess that would explain why you fly into all of our episodes on a helicopter and why you have all these bodyguards around you all the time. You'll be a famous political figure. All right. All right. Okay. So it's 1888. Fermat is back in Haiti. There's a contested election. He becomes Haiti's Minister of Finance and Foreign Affairs under the government that's led by the new president, General Florville Hippolyte. And that is where Frederick Douglass comes in. Right, Eric? Yes. So Frederick Douglass gets talked about in American history, in part because of all his work on the abolition of slavery. But as is the case with so much of American history, it's like once that period of reconstruction is violently put to an end, then the focus moves away from the plight of African-Americans and it becomes about industrialization in New York and Chicago. And it becomes about immigration from Western Europe and Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. So the voices in power kind of bury what happens to Frederick Douglass as well. And I don't know about you, but I wasn't taught anything about Haiti in the 1880s and 1890s. I doubt that most people are. Right. Yeah, right. The white and American and European bias in both history and anthropology. We Absolutely. can we can thank that for our yeah. lack of yeah. discussion about these topics. Exactly. Okay, so historian Eric, how does Frederick Douglass actually get to Haiti? So we have to go to the presidency of Benjamin Harrison, another person we don't talk very much about. So interestingly, Harrison ostensibly wanted to continue those policies during Reconstruction that were giving increased representation to African-Americans and led to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So Harrison appoints Frederick Douglass to be the minister resident to Haiti. Now, the, the, it's basically ambassador, but the title ambassador would not be used by the United States until 1893. So in 1890, Harrison asks Douglas to be minister resident to Haiti. Douglas had already been friends with Ebenezer Bassett, who was the first African-American diplomat to Haiti after the Civil War. And after Hippolyte takes over the presidency, the American Secretary of State, James Blaine, wanted somebody who he thought would be respected in Haiti to help broker a deal between Haiti and the United States. So Douglas was their man. For a time. Oh, it sounds like you're about to do a historian big reveal. 
<laughs> right? And where does Fermat fit in with all of this? Guys, it's complicated. <laughs> oh, really? You don't say. Right? Okay. So Secretary of State Blaine wants Frederick Douglass to get permission to use the Haitian port of Mole St. Nicolas, which is in Northwest Haiti. And the reason they want it is because the United States wants a refueling station for the U.S. Navy. The reason why that's important is because there's already work going on in the late 19th century in both Nicaragua and Panama to make a canal between the Atlantic and the Pacific, which eventually becomes the Panama Canal. The U.S. wants control of the approach to the canal from the Caribbean side. Mm. And because Fermat is Minister of Foreign Affairs, Douglas, as the resident minister to Haiti, he's supposed to make a deal with Fermat to get that naval base in Haiti. So how did those negotiations go, Eric? I'm glad you asked. It was a cluster f- Oh, wait, we can't say a, clus- a cluster bleep. A cluster bleep. It was a cluster bleep. I- I mean, these were two really prominent figures in, in their own countries and governments. So what went wrong? Oh, oh, I got it. It's complicated. Uh, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a historical event, and that's the favorite phrase of historians. At yeah. least it seems so. so I, it is. All right. So you ready? History's complicated. Yeah. Okay. So in around 1888 to 1890, the U.S. had just had a disastrous fight with Germany in Samoa. Where's Samoa, Jim? Uh South Pacific. Right. Way far away, right? Yeah. And then a hurricane comes and it wipes out nearly all of the American ships there in March of 1889. And simultaneously, the unrest in Haiti in the late 1880s leads to German financiers moving into Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So the U.S. wants to flex its muscles against the Germans in Haiti as kind of a getting back at what happened to the United States Navy in the South Pacific. Okay, historian. Technically, that was a cyclone that hit okay, Althea fair. Harbor in Samoa because of where it is. And all six ships belonging to both the U.S. and Germany were sunk. The yeah. only survivor of, of the cyclone was a British Corvette that escaped. But the main point here is that the U.S. wanted a naval base in Haiti like it already had in Samoa, and Douglas was sent to soften up Felman. But it gets worse. Oh, geez. (laughs) So for reasons that really are probably straight up bigotry, Secretary of State James Blaine also sent to Haiti U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Bancroft Girardi, and he didn't consult Frederick Douglass about this. So Girardi argues that Haitian President Hippolyte actually owed the base to the United States and that Haiti also had to deny port access to Germany or to any other European power until the U.S. said that they could. Wow. So Fermat, who's in the negotiation, is completely insulted. And if this wasn't bad enough, there was also a smoke-filled backroom deal in New York for a steamship company with direct ties both to Rear Admiral Girardi and to Secretary Blaine to run a shipping line from Haiti to New York and make Haiti pay for it. Oh, oh my God. So Fermat is going to have none of this. He refused to actually even speak to anybody except for Frederick Douglass. And so the U.S. Navy moves its quote-unquote white squadron, which has 100 guns and 2,000 men, into Port-au-Prince Harbor, to force Haiti to pay 
the Clyde Steamboat Company a small fortune to give up the land to the U.S. Navy for a base. And interestingly, literally at gunpoint, Frederick Douglass and Fermat together string out the negotiations for almost two years. Both men are disgusted, though completely not surprised at all, at the corruption of the white U.S. government. Eventually, Frederick Douglass totally just resigns. But interestingly, Fermat holds out and the United States gets nothing from Haiti. Ah, That's a hell of a story. And I will say, Fermat was really celebrated for standing up to the U.S. Exactly. But there's a sad coda to the story. Two years later, at the famous World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, the United States would not appoint a single Black American to be a commissioner or a representative. The only African-Americans at the fair were taking out the trash and doing the laundry. That's the only. And as exhibits. Yeah. Yeah. And as, yeah, exactly. So to publicize this open discrimination, Frederick Douglass joined journalist Ida B. Wells to publish the reason why the colored American is not in the world's Columbian exposition. It was a widely circulated pamphlet. And then Douglass was appointed as a representative, not for the United States, but (laughs) wait for it. For Haiti. Uh, Okay, so as representative for Haiti, even though he wasn't Haitian, did Douglas bring up Fermat or equality of the human races at all? Well, no, not directly, though Douglas certainly praised the learned men of Haiti. But instead, Douglas repeated something that Fermat also referenced in his later writings, that as the quote-unquote Black Republic, that was what Haiti was, white Americans and Europeans would use Haiti as a convenient exemplar for all of their scientific debates about race. If, said Douglas, if Haiti could become prosperous, it would signal that there was no hierarchy of races. Yeah. Fermat talks about that a lot in his book too. And, you know, maybe that could have happened if Haiti had been treated the same as other countries. Right. Which it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And Douglas blamed those educated Haitians that had been influenced by European money for the unrest and the near constant state of revolution that happens afterwards in Haiti. But Douglas also blames white Americans for seeing Haiti as a shithole country that they could just kind of take over whenever they wanted it. I think that was corrected in Congress as a shit house, a shit house country. True. Sorry. Oh, God. Okay. We're getting deep into Trump references here. That, that was when Tom Cotton and David Perdue said they thought Trump had said shit house instead of shit hole, right? Like that was yeah. supposed to come in any better. Yep. Oh, anyway, unfortunately, Douglas's fears at yeah. the World's Fair were correct. Um, totally. As foreign minister, Fermat attempted to modernize the country until President Hippolyte died. And then Fermat was sent to England. Hippolyte's successor eventually resigned. And in the ensuing presidential campaigns, in which Fermat himself actually ran for president, uh, Germany sent warships to Port-au-Prince in support of another candidate favorable to their interests. Fermat found himself exiled again, this time on St. Thomas. And from there, he wrote in support of pan-Caribbeanism to resist the U.S. and European powers. And he wrote a history of the U.S. for Haitians. Huh. even made a special appeal to President Teddy Roosevelt to help Haiti the way that President Harrison once did, instead of just seeing the Black Republic as this stepping stone that could be manipulated to, to gain greater American dominance in the hemisphere. 
this book is the one Fermanzo obituary mentions instead of the equality of the human races. The one to Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. So he did a lot in his life, Fermanzo. did. Yeah. And after another attempt at the presidency, which resulted in this second exile, Fermanzo wow. meditated on the questions that had been percolating when he served as minister. Like, how should Haiti engage with the balance of power that lay so clearly with the U.S.? without losing its own sovereignty. And in that work, sort of directed towards Roosevelt, he made a very prescient statement, I think. Eric, one last quote. After my death, he says, one of two things will happen. Either Haiti will fall under foreign control, or it will resolutely adopt the principles in the name of which it has always struggled and fought, end quote. Sadly, kind of seems like the first one turned out to be true. Yeah, yeah. In the midst of even more political turmoil just after Fermanzo's death in 1911, the U.S. invaded Haiti, right? Mm. Just a few years later in 1915 under President Wilson, and in many senses actually recolonizing it all over again, the U.S. stayed till 1934. Given President Wilson's reputation as such a bigot, I, I thought that it would be his administration that finally just forced its way into Haiti. Totally. And as is so often the case, it was American corporations who lobbied to have their interests protected in that takeover, just like the Germans had done when Fermanzo was still alive. Yeah. You know, the U.S. military actually confiscated Haiti's gold reserves, yeah. and it took them to New York and deposited oh them in Wall Street. Jeez. And sadly, the U.S. occupation of Haiti was just as brutal as you might imagine. There were rebellions and uprisings. There was actually forced labor on coffee plantations mm. and lynchings and assassinations and executions. Yeah, the U.S. installed their own Haitian presidents, they enacted martial law, and they basically ran Haiti's government, much like they did in the Philippines, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, Samoa. It's a long list. Yeah. I mean, the human rights abuses were flagrant and really extensive, resulting in the death of up to 15,000 Haitians during the entire occupation, which some people would claim is a high estimate, um, but others would claim is spot on. Americans even instituted Jim Crow laws in parallel with those in the U.S. at the time. It was just crazy. And this is something that I think isn't taught very often in American history. Right. Yeah. And, and when the military elite took over Haiti's government after the U.S. finally left, they assumed a dictatorial type rule that's kind of continued really to the present, to foment poverty, political instability, and, and unrest that we're seeing now. Totally. You know, people might claim sometimes that the American takeover of Haiti is because Haitians can't manage themselves or something. But when we dig into what actually happened in the American occupation of Haiti, it was dirty and corrupt. I have an anecdotal story about that. Okay. So the United States is in Haiti for almost the exact same amount of time that the United States is in Afghanistan for about 20 years. Mm. We don't talk about it at all in American history, but we basically occupied them for 20 years. Now, here's this anecdote. In January of 1917, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, mm -hmm. ring a bell? <laughs> so he was at the time Assistant Secretary of the Navy, just like his cousin Teddy Roosevelt had once been. And he travels to Haiti to, quote unquote, inspect the Marines that are stationed there during the takeover. But FDR was really there to set up a commercial plantation. And he did it with this guy named John McElhinney, who was the highest ranking U.S. civilian officer in Haiti, supposedly taking care of Haiti. Mm. Now, 
he also was there with Major Henry L. Roosevelt, another Roosevelt cousin, who was one of the Marines who was stationed in Haiti at the time. So FDR actually spends his visit to Haiti just looking around for potential sites for his own commercial plantation interests in anticipation of the new constitution that would legalize foreign land ownership in Haiti, just like Fremont fought against. He actually wrote that constitution, FDR. Actually, FDR bragged that he wrote that constitution, but it was really written even before he got there by the Woodrow Wilson administration. And it was written specifically so there could be maximum white control over Haiti. Oh. Kind of like the Alabama state constitution. Exactly. <laughs> Just like all those Jim Crow constitutions at yeah. the time, right? The Roosevelt fingerprint on Haiti itself is pretty huge. Major Henry Roosevelt would also eventually become assistant secretary of the Navy. There's a dynasty happening. Yeah. That happened when FDR was president of the United States. And you guessed it. Henry Roosevelt was actually in charge of the Haitian occupation until 1934. Right. That's bleak. Bleak, yes. <laughs> yeah. himself, the politician, anthropologist, lawyer, he, he didn't just predict this outcome, but he even played a role in some of its earlier stages. And despite spending his life fighting for racial equality and Haitian sovereignty, that simply wasn't to be the case. No. That, that same trend is continuing to this day with the recent assassination of the Haitian president, Moise and uh, by Colombian mercs, aided by Haitian-American interpreters from Florida. And the governmental transition in the wake of the assassination is being overseen by a core group of white folks from Germany, Brazil, Canada, Spain, the United States, France, and the European Union. None of these white polities would be subjected to the same kind of exterior management. None of them would put up with it. It's true. So... As depressing as it is, is it? do you think it's fair to say that ignoring Fermat and anthropology, is that just part of this larger pattern of seeing Haiti as this place in need of redemption by white colonial yeah. powers? Wow. I'll take a stab at that. Yes, uh, in a <laughs> sense. I think the viewing of Fermat in this way and sort of sweeping him aside was part of the whole spirit that led to that eventual occupation and marginalization of the nation, followed by blaming its status as a Black Republic for its quote-unquote failures, even though those were externally imposed. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of why Fermat's work is so inspiring is because it was produced under conditions where he was so deeply marginalized. And it's Mm -hmm. the science and the arguments just hold up, even his predictions hold up into the present. So for all kinds of reasons, political, social justice oriented, decolonizing and straight up good scholarship, he's really worth reading. That's inspirational. I agree. You sold me, Joe. Well, on that note, I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.